The passing of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg last week has created a vacancy on the bench. President Trump and Republicans have since taken steps toward quickly confirming a conservative replacement for Ginsburg, who was a liberal icon. Trump is expected to announce a nominee late this week, and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has said confirmation hearings in the Judiciary Committee could begin as early as mid-October. Republicans are hoping that the Supreme Court fight will inject a last-minute boost into Trump's re-election bid and the battle for the Senate majority. Meanwhile, Democrats have vowed to fight in the hearings and on the Senate floor, citing precedent set by Senate Republicans who refused to consider President Obama's Supreme Court nominee in an election year that was back in 2016. But beyond procedural tactics to slow the process, there may not be much that Democrats can actually do to stop Trump's pick for a conservative justice from filling the seat on the court. Is such a speedy nomination and confirmation process unusual when it comes to new Supreme Court justices? And how much power does a president have to push through a confirmation? And as questions arise about how the Democrats might retaliate, including court packing, is changing the number of justices really possible? How much of all of this does the Constitution actually dictate? Plus, increasingly political confirmation hearings and the prominence of the Supreme Court as an issue on the campaign trail have really added to a sense of a politicized judiciary. Taken together, does all of this compromise the independence of the highest court in the land? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. To understand Trump's actions today, it's usually helpful to lay out the history and the precedent that brought us here. On this episode, we'll capture the evolution of our Supreme Court and how that history informs what's happening in Congress and on the campaign trail today. To start, I turn to Lisa Holmes, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Vermont. She specializes in judicial politics and constitutional law. Naturally then, I asked her about the ways our judiciary has been shaped by the Constitution, by Congress, and by presidential politics. Does the Constitution lay out a specific number of justices that must sit on the Supreme Court? What does the Constitution say in regards to the high court? So the Constitution does not dictate how many justices there should be on the Supreme Court. This is something that Congress has power over to set the number of justices, how Congress sees fit on the Supreme Court. And what about the political independence of the court? Does the Constitution lay out a court that's entirely independent from politics? What was the initial vision for this branch? Uh, that's a really good question. I think underlying an awful lot of what is in Article 3 in the Constitution is this idea that the judiciary should be independent. And that comes in the form of things like the lifetime tenure provision that they get to serve during good behavior. And another mechanism in the Constitution that protects independence is that judicial salaries can be raised, but a judge's salary cannot be reduced by Congress, for example. So underpinning all of that is this idea of judicial independence. But I think it's also important to recognize that, of course, judges are appointed by the other political branches of government. So that is one way in which they are attached to both the presidency and the U.S. Senate. And you mentioned that Congress has historically set the number of justices. What was the initial number of justices that Congress set? Where did we start with this? So where this started at the beginning of the founding of the judiciary of the Supreme Court was that Congress set this number at six, that there was one chief justice and five associate justices. That was back in 1789 when the judiciary was first established. But how did the number of justices change over the following 100 years or so? 
earlier in our history, Congress was quite willing to alter the number of justices on the Supreme Court. At one point, it went up to as high as 10, but it has been set at nine justices since 1869. And there were really two reasons why the number of justices on the Supreme Court changed earlier in our history. One was as the nation expanded westward and new judicial circuits were created, to cover those new states as well. Early on, the number of justices on the Supreme Court was also thought that it was appropriate to increase that number to match the number of circuits we had. But I think more interestingly, the second reason why that number varied earlier in our history was because Congress demonstrated a willingness to use that power for political ends. So during the first handful of decades of our existence as a country, when Congress altered the number of justices on the Supreme Court, they always did so with at least some eye towards politics at the time, adding seats when they wanted to and reducing the number of seats when Congress wanted to. So why did that change then after 1869? Why did Congress move away from appointing more judges for political gain? There are, I think, a lot of reasons for this, including the fact that just even some of our political leaders started to recognize that this is maybe not an appropriate way to interact with what is supposed to be a co-equal branch of government. Before he was president, for example, Woodrow Wilson, who was a political scientist, wrote at one point that this is a practice that we should not engage in anymore, the practice of altering the number of seats on the Supreme Court for political gain, because while that might be allowed in the Constitution, and it is allowed in the Constitution, Woodrow Wilson argued that it violated the spirit of the Constitution. That just, you know, as as the judiciary and its legitimacy became more entrenched in our society and in our political sphere, it became less tolerable to manipulate the Supreme Court in that way. But that doesn't mean that some people haven't tried since 1869 to change the size of the court, most notably Franklin Roosevelt in 1937. Can you explain what FDR tried to do in regards to the size of the Supreme Court? Right. And that is the best example since this solidification of the Supreme Court being at nine justices, that FDR's situation is is the most apparent effort to try to change that in subsequent years. So what his frustration was with the Supreme Court was the Supreme Court's handling of key provisions in his New Deal plan. So what happened was FDR was reelected in 1936 in a landslide, and his Democratic Party also gained more seats in Congress as well. So they entered 1937 with a mandate. But the problem was this recalcitrant, more conservative Supreme Court getting in the way of some of FDR's key New Deal plans. So very soon after his reelection in February of 1937, FDR proposed his plan to potentially alter the number of justices on the Supreme Court. How he pitched this in one of his fireside chats was to say that the Supreme Court needed some newer, younger blood and people on the court who were more in tune with the political and economic crisis of the time. So what he proposed was to add a new seat onto the Supreme Court for every sitting justice of the time who was at least 70 years of age. There were six justices on the Supreme Court at the time of that age. So long story short, what FDR was proposing was to increase the number of justices from nine all the way to 15. 
And even though FDR came into his second term on this wave of support, this was a proposal that was not as popular as he might have expected it to be, not just among the opposite party, the Republican Party, but even among his own party in terms of this solidification of the idea that manipulating the Supreme Court in that way is a bridge too far, even in a time of crisis like we were in at that time. So it was perceived as a bridge too far, but to be clear, would it have been legal had it happened? It would have been absolutely legal. Again, the Constitution does not set how many justices should be on the Supreme Court. So similar to how Congress manipulated that number earlier in our history, in part for their own political ends, if FDR could have gotten the support for this and really pushed for this, it would have been legal. You've touched on this, but what really prevents Congress from doing this, from taking this on now or in recent history? There are two things that prevents Congress from doing this. One is their own sense of institutional propriety and their own self-restraint. But the other thing is really we the people, that we the people respect the Supreme Court and think of the Supreme Court as being a legitimate branch of government. And the lesson coming out of FDR's effort, unsuccessful effort to change the number of justices on the Supreme Court was the conventional wisdom that the American public doesn't have much stomach for this, is not going to stand for such overt manipulation of another branch of government like that. Or at least that was the school of thought coming out of FDR's unsuccessful plan to change the number of justices on the Supreme Court at that time. I'm sort of surprised to hear that it seems like Americans at one point were tolerant of this kind of move and had grown less tolerant over time. Do does the court's independence or perceived independence, has it evolved along with that? Have we seen America's faith in the court as an independent body evolve over time? Absolutely. It's actually, I think, one of the more significant developments in American legal history is the increasing legitimacy with which the American people hold the judiciary as a whole and the Supreme Court in particular. I think one thing that's very important to understand about the judicial branch, including the Supreme Court, is that they have virtually no formal power. Hamilton even said so in Federalist 78. The judiciary does not have the purse or the sword, does not have the major formal powers that the other branches of government have. All they have, Hamilton said, are their decisions. And they don't even have their own ability to enforce their decisions. So they're dependent on the fact that the public supports them and sees them as legitimate. And that's the hook here, that as time has gone on, the Supreme Court has developed this very strong, what we call in the political science literature, reservoir of goodwill among the American people. And that goes a good way in constraining the other branches of government and preventing them from manipulating the judiciary, especially the Supreme Court, in such blatant way. The way that I tend to put it when I teach this material to students is that we all listen to the judiciary because we choose to listen to the judiciary. They can't make us listen to them. And so if we start thinking of the judicial branch as a bunch of partisan hacks, no different than perhaps any other branch of government, why would we be so 
interested in listening to them anymore. And that also dovetails to the relevant concern about our faith in the rule of law and the decisions that the judiciary hands down. So within the political science field, there is great concern that comes along with what could happen if the court's legitimacy starts being undermined in a substantial way. One piece of of the court process that's become quite political is the confirmation hearing process for new justices. How has the confirmation process evolved over the past 20 years or so? Well, the confirmation process for judges in general and Supreme Court justices in particular has just become more contentious as our two political parties have become more polarized. So appointments to the Supreme Court, I think, are increasingly viewed as very high stakes events where each side, the Democrats and the Republican, kind of retreat to their own camps. So we see confirmation events that are more controversial, that are more divisive, that tend to be concluded through party line votes, for example, or pretty close to party line votes more frequently than we used to. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, for example, when she was confirmed, was confirmed quickly and in a very one-sided vote. You know, the the one-sided vote just does not happen anymore, or at least has not happened in a handful of years. It seems like, at least from my view, that the line of questioning that these judges are asked has really changed in tone and in substance. It's become more about ideology than a person's ability to sort of make a fair legal judgment. Have you seen that trend? I have seen that as well, and not just in the confirmation hearings, but just in general, how our political leaders talk about judges. In 2016, for example, I noticed that in one of the presidential debates between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, when they were asked about the judiciary, they both very quickly immediately boiled this down to Roe versus Wade. And even as recently as the 2000 presidential election between George W. Bush and Al Gore, they were much more careful at least to speak in the language of judicial philosophy rather than the overt politics of whether their judges would be likely to uphold Roe or strike down Roe. I think another really prevalent example right now is how some of our political leaders are talking about replacing Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I think it's kind of stunning, for example, that Lindsey Graham has said flat out, we've got the votes to confirm a judge. We don't even know, as I'm speaking to you today, who the identity of that nominee is going to be. And Lindsey Graham is speaking in the language of having the votes to confirm. So what does that mean for Lindsey Graham's approach to conducting an independent vetting of this nominee once the nominee's identity becomes public? Yeah, the Republicans and the president are really pushing for a quick confirmation process to fill late Justice Ginsburg's seat. Can you put that in context? How long should the confirmation process usually take? Ideally, you would want a confirmation process that does reflect a sincere check by the Senate on the the presidency. Now, there's no set number of days or months But in recent decades, the average time once a nominee is forwarded to the Senate for the Supreme Court, the Senate on average has taken about 75 days to confirm that person. So, you know, the thought of perhaps confirming President Trump's nominee before the November 3rd election day would be unusually fast. It would be very quick in in contemporary confirmation politic trends for that to happen that quickly. 
But for that nominee to be confirmed before the end of 2020 would be well within the ballpark of what a traditional nomination event to the Supreme Court takes in recent decades. So is there any part of what we're seeing about Trump's imminent nomination and the forthcoming confirmation process that's really unprecedented in Supreme Court history? Or might this be sort of normal to a degree in terms of timeline and appointing somebody to the court? Well, on one level, this is unusual in that I believe it's only once in U.S. history has a vacancy on the Supreme Court become open this close to a presidential election. So, yes, we are in unusual territory here, not completely uncharted territory. Appointments have happened during presidential election years, but this close to an election is clearly unusual. But I think in terms of the late Justice Ginsburg's vacancy, the thought of President Trump filling that during the election year, especially given uh, a Republican-controlled Senate, is not out of the realm of historical normalcy. But I think when you connect it to what happened in 2016, of course, is when this all takes a turn. And you can understand, I, I think, much more fully why this is so controversial and problematic. And in 2016, of course, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell refused to fill a seat made vacant earlier in the year by the death of Justice Antonin Scalia until after the 2016 election. But to return to the point of sort of what is or isn't unusual in this moment, President Trump will likely appoint three Supreme Court justices in his first term. Is that unusually high? Historically, not necessarily, but in recent decades, it is, right? Because he hasn't even finished his fourth year in office yet, and he's already gotten three appointees to the Supreme Court, presuming this third one goes through, and I suspect that it will. When you compare that, President Obama, across eight years, only had two appointees to the Supreme Court. George W. Bush, same thing, across eight years, only had two appointees to the Supreme Court. If you compare Donald Trump to Jimmy Carter, for example, example, Jimmy Carter was a one-term president, only in office for four years, and he had no uh, opportunity to appoint anybody to the Supreme Court. So I think for a president in a single term, we don't know, of course, yet whether President Trump is going to be a one-term president or a two-term president. But for where we stand right now, this is unusual for recent decades. So then what are the potential implications of that, of President Trump appointing three justices in such a short time? Well, there are lots of implications. The biggest implication, of course, is the opportunity to replace a committed member of the liberal bloc of the Supreme Court with a conservative is going to change the composition of the Supreme Court really for the foreseeable future. And the names that are floating around as the likely people that President Trump is considering to nominate for this seat are younger and could conceivably be on the Supreme Court for many, many decades. Another potential change that this could lead to is a change in John Roberts' role on the Supreme Court. Now, what's been happening in recent decades is that, by and large, the Supreme Court's become more conservative. So we always like to think of who is the median justice, the one who, in the closely decided cases, is the one that swings the decision one way or another. And for many years, that was Sandra Day O'Connor. And then after she left the court, that role was filled by Anthony Kennedy. And after he left a little earlier in the Trump administration, the justice that we generally think of as being the one who is most likely to be the deciding vote in closely divided five to four decisions is the chief justice. Well, if you add another very conservative justice in place of a very liberal justice, Robert's ability to kind of dictate where the court goes would seemingly be mitigated to a good extent. 
One thing that President Trump has repeated is that we need nine justices by Election Day to deal with any voting issues that should rise to the court. Is that true? Do we need that number? And if there are only eight justices on the court and voting issues related to who wins the election do in fact rise to the court, what happens then if we only have eight justices? We don't technically need nine justices. Keep in mind, let's remember what happened in 2016. The Republican-controlled Senate saw to it that the Supreme Court stayed at eight justices from the day of Scalia's death in February of 2016 until, I believe it was not until April of 2017, that Neil Gorsuch was actually confirmed. So we went through an election cycle with only eight justices in 2016. And, and I don't recall hearing a whole lot of concern at that time about what if there's a contested election. So we don't need to have nine justices on the Supreme Court on election day. There's nothing that dictates that we have to have that. In terms of the question of what happens when the court ties in a decision, the protocol is that the lower court ruling stands. So one high profile example of this is actually not in so much in the election law area, it's in the fact that the Supreme Court is scheduled to hear oral arguments in the latest challenge to the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, something like a week after election day, very soon after election day. And if we only have eight justices on the court in that case, and the court ties, it means that the lower court ruling, which struck down the problematic provision in the Affordable Care Act and the act as a whole, would stand. We learned earlier this week that Mitch McConnell does have enough Republican senators on board to push ahead with the confirmation process. Democrats have vowed to fight this, but is there anything they can really do? It turns out my colleague Martine Powers had the same question. Martine talked to senior congressional correspondent Paul Kane for our Post Reports podcast. You know, the reality is in the Senate right now, it takes just a simple majority to advance any presidential nominee, whether it is to some random commission overseeing the Great Lakes or the Supreme Court of the United States of America. And that has left the minority party with very few options. The reality is that there's not a whole lot they can do. And what are some of these theories that we have heard of that Democrats could do or that people think that Democrats could do right now? Oh, there's this thought of if you impeached someone, anyone, Bill Barr or impeached Trump again and sent that resolution across the Capitol, that it would instantly stop all other action and force them to hold an impeachment trial. You know, I got an email from a reader asking about they could just deny unanimous consent. Hmm. Blocking unanimous consent is something that blocks the action from taking place. And basically would make the voting process go much more slowly. Yeah, but there are provisions already in line for how to deal with those things. You file something called a cloture motion. That's the that's the way you block a filibuster, defeat a filibuster. And yes, it'll take three days to overcome that process. But think of it this way. If there really were a way for this minority party to block this Supreme Court nominee, then Mitch McConnell would have thought of it <laughs> in the eight years that he served as minority leader and was considered the obstructionist in chief. He was the you know, he was considered the greatest obstructor in the history of the Senate, blocking uh, Barack Obama in every possible way. If there were ways for to block the Supreme Court nominations of Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan from the minority position, 
McConnell would have done it, but he couldn't do it. And then I've heard these ideas that potentially if Democrats were to win control of the Senate in November, and if there were to be a Democratic president, that there's this idea you could pack the court afterward. You could just change the number of justices that there are on the Supreme Court and increase them so you could have two more Democrat-appointed justices, or you could have four more. Well, that is a that, that is something that can legitimately be done in the legislative process. There was no foundation in the Constitution that set the number of Supreme Court justices at nine. And you'd also probably need support from actual Democratic leadership. And this seems like something that congressional leadership isn't that interested in. And it's something that Joe Biden has said that he straight up doesn't think should happen. Yeah, Biden had got a little bit cagey the other night when he was asked about it in a local interview. I think it was in Wisconsin. And he basically said that he didn't want to answer the question because if he answers the question, then that's going to change the discussion. And what Democrats are trying to do right now is to avoid these – these are process fights and they really want to try and focus this fight politically on what the impact of trading in Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the most iconic liberal justice of the last 25 years, for a very staunch conservative jurist like Amy Coney Barrett. Like that is – the biggest ideological jump that the court would have seen since Thurgood Marshall was replaced by Clarence Thomas. They want to make this fight politically not about these seemingly random efforts to put more justices on the Supreme Court, and they want this fight to be about the impact on the Affordable Care Act, on voting rights, on clean air, clean water. But then with all that in mind, like what is the actual plan? Are they just basically giving up and saying, look, this is the reality that there will be a justice appointed by President Trump who will be extremely conservative? Or or do they have a plan for how to come out of this? Um, It's kind of depressing among Senate Democratic ranks. You know, when you talk to them, I, I spoke to Senator Michael Bennett Monday night. Are you worried about not being able to do anything from inside this building in terms of blocking the nomination? Well, I think we're in a situation where Mitch McConnell is the only person in this building that can decide when and whether and how to move the nomination forward. You know, my hope is that there'll be enough Republicans to stop it, but I don't think the likelihood of that is very high. And he basically was pretty downbeat. He wants this to be a big fight and they're going to try and defeat this nominee. But to do so, it's going to take something really unusual. They're going to have to find something about the nominee's background that was previously unknown. It's very unlikely that they'll be able to find something new. But I do wonder if this is somewhat of a turning point in terms of the future of this body and this idea that there could ever be any form of compromise between Democrats and Republicans ever again. Yeah, certainly on the Supreme Court and judicial nominations, it has become this important of a clash because Congress itself has failed as an institution on so many issues. Hmm. From Mitch McConnell to Elizabeth Warren, you see in a Senate today 
people who no longer believe that legislation is really even possible out of the Senate mm. and that the executive branch through rulemaking, regulation and such is where all the, the real power lies. And it then means that gets litigated because the losing side, when Obama was the one who famously said, I have a, I have a phone and a pen, and basically he started using his pen in his second term mm. for executive actions, and which led to Republicans filing lawsuits that went to the federal courts. Now you have Democrats and Democratic state attorney generals filing lawsuits going to the federal courts, mm -hmm. that it all turns into a game of who can control the federal courts so that your side can win on the executive actions taken by whoever is president. Totally. And it's all part of this failure of Congress to do anything. Even before Ruth Ginsburg passed away on Friday night, Mitch McConnell was using this month to do nothing but confirm federal judges. That's how much he views the importance of this issue. Well, it seems like what McConnell is doing now in prioritizing trying to get a potential new justice confirmed to the exclusion of other things that he arguably should be paying attention to. I think specifically thinking about coronavirus aid. So what is this confirmation process going to do to the other things that could have potentially been hashed out in the Senate in this last month before the election? Yeah, you know, a lot of people going back to, say, May and June assumed that there would be so much political pressure to keep the federal rescue relief spigots flowing with money to help with both the economic and health crises caused by the pandemic. And instead, there was some conservative uprising in McConnell's GOP Senate caucus uh, who didn't, you know, people who just didn't want to spend more money. And if there's a, a split in his caucus, McConnell's posture is simply to just not bring something up. That meant that just this whole idea of a relief package got thrown on the back burner. You know, there's got to be some bill that is proposed by one of his endangered incumbents, whether it's Tom Tillis or Susan Collins or whoever, that would, even if it doesn't have a chance of getting in law, you could put it on the Senate floor and do something that might help their, his endangered incumbents, give them a couple days of chance to go home and say, look, we're debating my bill. Nah, he doesn't bother. He's not doing that. Uh-uh. He does not care. He cares about appointing federal judges. These were district court judges that were getting confirmed this month. They're not even that powerful. But McConnell doesn't care. He sees the courts as the final arbiter, uh, the real arbiter of legislation and executive actions. So that's all he really cares about. And it's to the detriment of his own incumbents who are facing tough reelect. That they will have to pay for the fact that yeah. this is the priority rather than yeah. helping Americans through COVID. Yeah. And they're in Cory Gardner in Colorado. Susan Collins in Maine are in states where Donald Trump is just not going to win and he's going to lose by a decent margin. And this only further polarizes that electorate and it makes their races that much harder to win. So in some ways, it seems like McConnell is almost making a trade-off here that he would prefer to risk control of the Senate if it means getting one more conservative justice on the court. Yeah. Look, he believes that this will help a handful of his incumbents who are up 
in states that Trump won by, you know, a few percentage points or more, place like Montana where Trump won by double digits and the Democratic governor, Steve Bullock, is running against the uh, incumbent, Steve Daines. He believes this is going to be one of those moments that turns a race like that into a very polarized, they call it a jersey race, small j, jersey. So it's red shirts versus blue shirts. This is a high stakes play. And yes, if the choice was get this lifetime appointment to the Supreme Court or not get this appointment and retain the majority, McConnell will choose the court every time. To listen to full episodes of Post Reports, find it wherever you get your podcasts. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? I'm Allison Michaels. I also want to take the chance to welcome our new producer to the show, Arjun Singh. A big welcome to him as he joins our Can He Do That family and helps us bring you this show every week. And as always, thanks so much for listening. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Ariel Plotnik and Arjun Singh with logo art from Loren Boglio and theme music by Ted Muldoon.